Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. A rested child is a happy child. Sleep Tight Stories is a weekly podcast that brings comfort and joy to families worldwide with calming bedtime stories. The stories are relevant to children and spark wonder without overstimulation, so they can fall asleep and stay asleep. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown, sleep tight stories. It's Friday, August 5th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The U.S. has officially declared the monkeypox outbreak a national health emergency. This is in addition to various states already declaring their own emergencies. The designation frees up funds to ramp up vaccination efforts, testing, education, and outreach. In the meantime, many monkeypox patients feel there's a lack of guidance and have been reporting excruciating pain. Dominique Mossbergen, medical science reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for what to know. Next, researchers at Yale University have used a new system they created called Organ X to restore cells in some organs of pigs that had just died. When blood is no longer pumping through organs, the cells begin to die. But with this system, it restored circulation and even repaired some of the damaged cells. Evan Bush, science reporter at NBC News, joins us for this breakthrough and the ethical questions raised about how medicine defines death. Finally, polio is back in the U.S. after being eliminated in 1979. There was a recent case in an unvaccinated 20-year-old in Rockland County, New York. What makes this case interesting is that it came from a vaccine-derived strain, meaning that it mutated from an oral vaccine that had a small amounts of the live virus. Miranda Dixon Lundenberg joins us for this latest case and how it affects the global eradication efforts. It's News Without the Noise. Let's dive in. The public health emergency is going to mobilize additional boots on the ground to help educate people about actions they can take to limit their exposure as vaccines become more widely available. Joining us now is Dominique Mossbergen, medical science reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Dominique. Thanks so much for having me. Well, let's talk about monkeypox and the latest that's going on right now. Uh, We're seeing California, Illinois, New York City. They've all declared states of emergency to help fight these monkeypox outbreaks. We're getting increased number of cases. And, you know, when places declare these things states of emergencies, it really just helps devote more resources to what's going on. In this case, it would be devoting resources to testing, vaccinations, education, outreach efforts, all that. And really what we're seeing is that as these things start spreading out, people that are getting afflicted with this, they're going to the doctors, they're reporting a big lack of guidance, not really knowing what to do at all, and the pain. Everybody's talking about how painful this is, and a lot of them are just feeling like they're not getting enough information a lot of times. So, Dominique, tell us what we're seeing out there. That's certainly been the case, at least, you know, through the earlier part of this outbreak, people who got diagnosed with monkeypox in June and July. I think things seem to be improving on the ground. You know, people are saying that they're getting slightly better guidance now. There's more public information about 
monkeypox and, you know, how it presents and what to expect and what to do. But, you know, I've spoken to several patients who were diagnosed with monkeypox in July. And so not that long ago, right, over the last few weeks. And they said, you know, that they, number one, it seems, you know, many people said that they were really taken aback by, you know, they didn't realize what um, high risk of monkeypox was in certain communities that they're in. You know, obviously, as we know, most monkeypox cases in the U.S. have been in the community of men who have sex with men and, you know, especially concentrated in some of the larger cities like Chicago and New York and San Francisco. And I think some people have said, look, I knew that monkeypox was a thing, but I didn't know that the risk was so high in my community. If I had known that it was at the time, maybe I would have taken some different choices, made some different choices during Pride, for example, during the July 4th weekend and so on. So I think there was some frustration about that, that there wasn't maybe adequate information about how serious the outbreak was already over the last few weeks. So I think that was part of it. I think patients I've spoken to, some of them have reported, as you said, you know, real pain. I think some other symptoms that are maybe a little worrying are really high fevers. So several people I spoke to said that they had extremely high fevers, you know, upwards of 103, 104 degrees Fahrenheit that didn't respond to fever-reducing medications like Tylenol and Advil and things like that. And some of them had to seek hospitalization because of these high fevers. Pain has obviously been a big one. I think especially if someone gets lesions in more sensitive areas of the body. Some people have reported lesions in their mouth, for example, which can make it, you know, especially if they're severe, can make it really hard to swallow. So it can make it hard to eat and drink and even in some cases hard to talk and even maybe to breathe if it gets really severe. If it's in sensitive regions, such as in the urethra or in the rectum or other sensitive areas like that, it can cause real extreme pain. Um, as you can imagine, you know, going to the bathroom and things like that become really, really hard. And some patients I've spoken to anyway have said that, you know, the pain was more than any pain that they've ever experienced in their life, you know, more than broken bones and more than other kind of painful things that they've experienced. And some of them said that they were given really strong painkillers like morphine and Vicodin, and even those really intense pain meds didn't help. That's one of the important things, and we learned a lot about this throughout the pandemic as well. We're always playing from behind when these things are happening. You know, cases need to start going out of control before we start talking about them. Declaring these states of emergencies happen after the case counts are so high now. And part of these efforts, right, as I mentioned, devoting more resources, education, outreach efforts, and people are starting to hear more about it. And like you said, a lot of people hear this stuff early on, and they might not think, well, it's not going to affect me all that. But, you know, then it comes closer and closer, and then uh, we're experiencing what's happening now. One of the interesting things also that you mentioned in the article talking to all these people is that they really feel like the healthcare system might not be completely ready for this. A lot of times they're misdiagnosing it with something else or maybe just dismissing it, saying, oh, you know, it's not that. Try some other medicine, things like that. And and again, maybe the hospitals themselves don't have the proper guidance on this. But patients have been experiencing that, that somebody got diagnosed with herpes and they gave them a Valtrex instead of going through and testing them for the monkeypox, different cases like that. 
Yeah, I think that, you know, patients have definitely reported frustrating, you know, situations like that. I think it's really tricky overall. You know, I think, I think you know, monkeypox has been endemic in, in parts of Africa for many years. But in terms of, you know, being a, a really major concern here in the U.S., it really hasn't happened until this particular outbreak. And so I think, you know, physicians on the ground have said, like, look, this is a new thing. We're still figuring it out. We're still learning. So I think there's definitely that. I mean, the CDC has said that they've, you know, the CDC and HHS, They've said, you know, we've done what we can to reach out to physicians and to um, community health clinics and things like that and at-risk communities to let them know, you know, what symptoms to look out for and stuff like that. So there have been some efforts, I think, but I think there has been criticism that maybe it wasn't enough or too little too late. Um, I think there is some criticism like that. So I definitely think some patients, especially in the earlier days, you know, really suffered from that lack of maybe sufficient education and just generally sufficient knowledge about this particular outbreak. Well, we're going to be hearing a lot more about this as cases do rise that you made mention in the article too. The U.S. has surpassed Spain with the most cases now, and that's not a place where we want to be. So learn more about it and and, uh, get in touch with your local uh, health systems to know more too. Dominique Mossbergen, medical science reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. And that some electrical activity could be observed, meaning that brain cells could be functioning dead. And so they wanted to test this out in other organs in the body, including you know, the heart and kidneys. Joining us now is Evan Bush, science reporter at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Evan. Oh, thanks for having me, Oscar. Well, we've been hearing a lot about pig transplants lately, pig organs. Uh, I mean, in just some very recent news, uh, pig kidneys that were transplanted into people, a pig heart that was transplanted into somebody. Scientists and uh, researchers are really looking towards pigs as a potential for using their organs in the future. There's still a lot of work yet to be done on it, but you know that could be one potential there. And what we just saw recently, there's more pigs in the news, right? So researchers at Yale University used a new technology to restore cells in some of the organs of pigs that had just died. They brought back some cell function. This machine pumps some nutrients and drugs through the organs, and they were able to essentially bring them back to life. So people are saying that this could help some whose hearts maybe have stopped or they've suffered a stroke. It could change the way organs are collected for transplanting. There's a lot of cool stuff on this. So, Evan, what are we seeing from uh, these researchers at Yale? Yeah, so it's really, really fascinating stuff. So uh, these scientists, a couple of years ago, they did some experimentation with a similar process for the brain. And what they saw was that brain cells could actually be repaired with a special formula and that some electrical activity could be observed, meaning that brain cells could be functioning dead. And so they wanted to test this out in other organs in the body, including you know, the heart and kidneys. So it's, it's very exciting stuff and it's very interesting and it comes with some really interesting ethical questions about how to use this technology, when it's appropriate to use this technology and, and really what its implications are. And Oscar, one thing I should say is that, you know, some of the uses of this technology could be very, very far away. So connecting someone to this as a treatment, that could be, you know, decades away. And so I think it's important that we we keep that in mind as we talk about. Exactly. Yeah. So this new system, they're calling it Organ X. 
And basically, just really quickly, I mean, it's a system of pumps and sensors and tubing connects to the pig arteries. And uh, as you mentioned, the special formula, it has a bunch of uh, medical drugs in there and mixed with blood. It pumps through and it essentially brings back life to some of these organs. The pigs themselves were, I guess, uh, you know, they, they were dead already, but they were able to see the life come back into some of those organs. I think there was some movement in some of the neck as well of, of some of these pigs. So the, the pigs were, were anesthetized as part of the experiment, and then a heart attack was induced by the researchers. And then the pigs were, were dead for an hour. And what happened next is, you know, the scientists used this OrganX process, and they you know, went through the pumping process with this formula that has, you know, 13 medical drugs in it, in addition to blood. And then the cells uh, showed that they were able to be revived. And that's something that scientists for decades at this point had thought that, you know, once you start going down this path where blood has been cut off to your organs and they start to deteriorate, that that damage was irreversible. And that's just apparently not true. And so it's really making waves and and it's really important and interesting, uh, interesting science here. As you mentioned, you know, this as a treatment for people is very, very far off. One of the more immediate uses could be to procure organs for transplants and and maybe give them a little more life, a longer lifespan. Because once you take a kidney out or heart out, you know, it needs to be transported very quickly and put in the new person. And, uh, you know, if you could possibly hook them up to this type of system, you can at least extend that life and and you can reach more people that way. So that's kind of one of the more immediate uses that they could get if they go that way. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the organ transplant process, I mean, time is of the essence, seconds matter. And so this could give doctors and, and surgeons more, more time to work with. And, you know, one thing that was mentioned is, you know, when someone does die and uh, transplant surgeons do their work, it can just take enough time that they're prioritizing which organs they should procure and preserve. And they might not have time to get all of the functional organs that they can when someone has died. And so this could be a solution to preserving those organs quite a bit longer. Um, But it does come with some ethical considerations. And the way that we think about death, this new technology could change the definition that we use for death and, and what what is required of our medical community when someone is on life support. I mean, this is kind of the most extreme form of life, life support where you're actually reviving cells that have died. So it, it comes with new and interesting questions. Definitely. I mean, brand new technology, obviously very far off from being used in humans. So there's time to at least work on the answers to those questions. But uh, interesting nonetheless. Evan Bush, science reporter at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Great to be here. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. 
the war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go, right? There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. On NPR's new podcast, Wild Card, we have ripped up the typical script. It's part existential deep dive and part game show. I ask actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to ask some of life's biggest questions. Listen to NPR's Wild Card on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Do the right thing for your child and the greater good of your community and have your child vaccinated now. The polio vaccine has been around since 1955. Clearly, it's safe Joining us now is Miranda Dixon Lunenberg, reporter at Vox. Thanks for joining us, Miranda. Yeah, and thank you. Well, let's talk about what we're seeing out there right now. We're obviously still dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. We're seeing increased cases of monkeypox circulating around the country. And now we also saw that there was a case of polio in the New York area. You know, this is coming after the U.S. has really declared victory over polio in 1979. We're seeing it here again. Now, it's not really much to worry about, it doesn't seem like, but, you know, we just have to address what's going on. So we saw a case in Rockland County in New York. This was in a 20-year-old person who was unvaccinated. So, Miranda, tell us a little bit more about what we're seeing and then about the, you know, the global efforts to eradicate polio right now. So I think the global effort is actually pretty tied into what would have been going on in Rockland County, because since 1979, the U.S. has had no wild polio spreading in the community. But this is not the first time that there has been a case coming from outside of the country. One of the challenges with polio is that although the vaccine is very effective, but contact tracing is difficult because actually... Three quarters of people have no symptoms and most of the remainder will have sort of flu-like symptoms for a few days and not necessarily think polio. And there is a long incubation period. So vaccination is really the only way to keep it suppressed. And a few times in, I think the last one was in 2013, that there was a case in the U.S. coming in from outside, but there's been definitely been others in the years before that. And back in the day, polio was one of the most feared childhood diseases. You know, it left thousands of children paralyzed. And basically, if you do get, you know, if somebody gets infected with polio, there's a bunch of symptoms. It can be similar to the flu, sore throat, fever, fatigue. In more severe cases, it can infect the spinal cord, causing meningitis, paralysis. So, you know, there's a range of things that could possibly happen. And back in the day, that's, that's what was going on. But largely, thanks to the vaccines, it's not happening. Unfortunately, in this case, what we're seeing in New York, we're seeing that this case popped up because of one of the vaccines. There's two types of vaccines for polio, and one of them, unfortunately, caused this little spillover. Is that correct? Yeah, that is approximately correct. So the oral vaccine, which is the one that is used in 
most of the developing world still in most of the countries that still have polio hotspots has live virus in it. And this is a virus that has been modified. It's weakened. It generally is not able to cause polio. There's a very rare one in a million rate of children who are severely immunocompromised will sometimes get paralysis from it, but that's very low. But because that has a live virus in it that is contagious, if it is given in a community that has enough unvaccinated people surrounding the cohort of kids who are being vaccinated, it can spread. And then if it spreads for enough generations, it can eventually mutate back into a more virulent strain that causes polio again. Now, the U.S. stopped using the oral vaccine in 2000 and has now uses an injected vaccine that has no live virus in it. It is inactivated and cannot spread or mutate back. And the concern right now, even in New York, they're looking at stool samples out there to see what's going on. They're finding traces of the virus. So they're hoping that there's no community spread out there, but it could be a possibility. As I mentioned, you know, officials really aren't sounding the alarms on this. So we're just noticing, you know, we had that one case and we're noticing it, it in coming up in samples. And, and as you mentioned, you know, when we do talk about the global eradication program, it's tough. A lot of the other countries that are used, they're still using this vaccine that has the live virus in it. And a lot of it has to do with cost. I mean, those cost as little as 12 cents compared to about $2 per dose for the inactivated vaccine. So that's a big piece of the puzzle there. So I do know it is part of the roadmap for the effort to fully eradicate polio. It does involve switching everywhere in the world to the inactivated vaccine I believe that right now the organization running this is trying to at least put in like all children will get one dose of the inactivated vaccine first before they get anything else. And this is not enough to cause full immunity, especially not lifelong immunity. You need four to five booster shots. But I think the hope is that one dose is a little easier to manage both with cost, logistics and just the global supply of the injected vaccine is not enough to cover the world. But I think the hope is to start slowly transitioning and eventually stop using the oral vaccine at all, but at least make sure it's only given to children who already have that initial little bit of immunity from the inactivated injected vaccine. And then that will minimize the risk of it ever spreading far enough to mutate back. Miranda Dixon Lunenberg, reporter at Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.